Do you have any weird habits? I mean, just think a minute, think on them. The giggles say we probably do. If you could, find someone next to you that you don't know and share your weird... I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that. Um, you can email me, Steve... I'm just kidding. I don't want to know those either. Um, but uh, yeah, I got this weird habit that I've shared in previous weeks as we we're kind of prepping for this series. Uh, if I'm shopping, like, for example, so I'm at the grocery store and, you know... Uh, you pick something up and you look at the side where all the labels are. You're you know, not really reading it. You just want to look like you're reading it. And you're looking, is this what I want? You're trying to make up your mind if, if that's what you're going to get. Um, if you decide, yes, this is what I want, am I the only one who puts it back and then grabs the one behind it? Am I, am I the only one? I, I might be. That's okay if I am. Um, just confessional here. And, or, or if I see one that the box is kind of damaged a little bit, like not flattened where obviously like something's broken inside, but just kind of damaged a little bit or just crumpled like... I'll put that back and I'll go for the one behind it. It's the silliest, stupid reasoning. Sometimes it's just the fact that well, it's the one in front. That means it's the one that other people have picked up. Again, it's not, anything like, it's not like a junior high cooties kind of thing. But like, well, if someone else picked it up, that means they put it back, so they must have found something wrong with it. So I'm going to go for the one in back that no one's picked up. Again, I know this is insanity. I, I know this is silly. And every time I do it, I'm like, this is silly, Steve. You're being weird. Um, it's just kind of this habit I got. Or if like at the hardware store, and, um, you know, the one thing that drives me nuts is if you're trying to buy nuts and bolts and they have them all packaged up in, in little, their own little containers and whatnot, and I brought in the receiving end of whatever I'm trying to fix, and so I want to see if I got the threads right or that kind of stuff. And uh, if you ever do, we kind of like you open the package, you take one out, and then you test, okay, this is it, this is the right one. And then what do you do? You kind of put it back in, close it, and then you grab a fresh one because, hey, somebody opened that one. I don't want that one, even if you're the one. Who opened it? And again, I, I know it's silly. I know it's ridiculous. But for some reason, the, 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 we get this mindset, oh, well, that one's damaged goods now. The, that one's value has been diminished for whatever reason, justified or not. And well, hey, the one behind it, no, that's still fresh. That's still brand new. And so, again, it's this backwards way of thinking, well, I'll put that one back and take one that I know still in my head, as, as backwards as it sounds, still has its full value. I know I'm being silly. There's nothing wrong with these things, but I, I dismiss them. I dismiss them as having uh, lesser value than, than the ones behind it. And see, this new series that we're walking through is called Damaged Goods. And in this series, for the next couple of weeks, we want to address this same concept. But instead of with products that we buy, we want to address it in relation to people. We want to address it in relation to people. How do we look at others and sometimes think, man, that's they're not worth this. They're not worth my time. How do sometimes we, we engage with people, whether we intend to or not, whether it's our heart or we just find ourselves in this place where we would see them as less than? Maybe this is something that you do to yourself because of your past decisions, because of things that have happened to you that weren't your decision at all, but just your past experiences. Maybe you've been left in a position where you feel like, well, I'm damaged goods. I'm unworthy. I, I, I don't deserve love. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve all that God offers, all that his people offer. I, 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 don't, I don't deserve those things. So each one of these weeks, there's going to be different ways we can look at this. For some of us, we're going to need to hear these truths as far as how we see ourselves. Maybe you really struggle the fact, with the fact that God has offered you forgiveness. Maybe you've even received his forgiveness but still feel unworthy and still get caught up in this where it almost immobilizes you. You have a hard time experiencing the joy that God desires for you in your life because you still just don't feel worthy. 
For others of us, it's the way we look at others. And, and there might be some convicting moments through these next couple weeks as we see, man, I, I, I have been viewing people as less than. I have been treating people as less than their worth, as less than God would desire me to treat them. So there's going to be two sides to, to these stories that we're going to be walking through. And that's exactly what we're doing here this morning as we're looking at different pictures of Jesus interacting with people. People that their society or maybe they themselves would have identified and say, hey, I'm, I'm damaged goods. There's things I've done, there's things I've been through that, that I, I'm broken a little bit now. I, I got some issues to deal with. And yet we see how Jesus interacts with them. <laughs> can, can you relate to this feeling of, of feeling like damaged goods? Do you have any moments in your life that come to mind right off the bat? Maybe you're even in one of these at, at this point in your life. Like, I, I can relate to this. I've, I've felt this struggle. I have a hard time receiving the grace of God, receiving his forgiveness, receiving his love, because I don't feel like I'm worth it. Like I said, again, maybe there's some conviction on this. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't treat people the way that I should. And so we're going to be looking to Jesus because the way he interacts with other people reveals his heart. The way Jesus interacts with others reveals the heart of God. If you want to know what is God's heart towards me, when I get caught up in this place of feeling like damaged goods, or when others treat me like damaged goods, we're going to see that as we see how Jesus interacts with others who are in those similar situations. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, I pray that through these coming weeks that you get a clearer picture of God's love for you. Whether you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not, I pray that through these coming weeks that you would have a clear picture of God's love for you. That for those who are following Jesus, you can celebrate that, find great joy in that. And for those that, that aren't followers of Jesus, I pray that you would come to know him more. And maybe take you at a point where you could take that step of surrender to him. As you realize how much he loves you, you can surrender your life to him. Looking at Jesus' interactions will not only shed light on God's heart, but God's heart towards others. How does God view other people? Not just how does he view us, but how does he view other people? Because then that dictates, again, a little bit of how we should go and treat other people, right? How we should interact with others. And so likewise, uh, to the Christ follower, I pray that we would realign our hearts with God. Even for someone here this morning who says, like, no, this really isn't an issue in my life. Steve. I'm pretty good at, at treating everyone uh, as having value and, and, and being image bearers of God. My, my guess is there's probably places in your life still where, where you could take some steps forward in that. Whether there's some kind of divisiveness, some kind of um, past hurt that you have a hard time getting over or a lack of forgiveness, um, that, that you just have a hard time offering that, or maybe there's even some other things. You know, our, our country is very divided right now. Maybe you have some kind of uh, threat of racism that you were raised with or that's just been allowed to, to exist and, and you just kind of write it off as coarse joking or just, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. But maybe there's some things where God's going to shed some light, and here's how we're called to treat others. So I pray that God would realign our hearts with his. And the ways that we've strayed, that I pray we'd come to a place of repentance, to be able to say, God, that's not what you have for me in my life. I repent. I turn and I go the other way, and now help me to go the way that you've modeled for us. Uh, to those who are still exploring who Jesus is, I pray that you'd be drawn to the heart of God. I pray that you'd be drawn, that you not only just get to see it, but that when you see 
the beautiful heart of God, that how he loves you and how he loves and interacts with others, that you would just be overcome by that love and be drawn to him and want to know him more. If you've got your Bibles with you here this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we'll be, begin in verse 9. This is a story of uh, Matthew the tax collector. Jesus is going to call Matthew uh, the tax collector. The same passage, or what's believed to be the same story, is, is found in Mark 2 as well as in Luke 5. And see, they're interesting because they're almost identical accounts, except for the fact that in Mark and in Luke, they use the name Levi instead of Matthew. So well, that's, that's odd, Steve. I mean, if, if, if the same story, why does one say Matthew and the other two say Levi? Well, many believe, actually, as I probably say most, it's hard to survey everybody, but uh, many believe that they're the same person. And this is my personal belief as well, that Matthew and Levi are in reference to the same person. This is something you see uh, multiple times in Scripture where someone had multiple names, whether it be like they'd have a, a, more of a Greek name than more of a, a Hebrew name. There's different cultures that were all kind of coexisting at that time. Uh, you know, now, Matthew and Levi both tend to be more uh, of a Hebrew name, more commonly. But it's not uncommon that people would have more than one name. Or they'd be given a new name. As there's a new call in their life, that there'd be a meaning behind the name that they're given. And you'd see that as they're given a new name. This was a common thing that took place. Uh, tradition, as far as what our understanding of what those who would have been early, early, the closest to this text when it was written, tradition would say that they believed Matthew and Levi were the same. You, you read the different accounts between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's almost identical, almost word for word a lot of times, except for this one major difference, Matthew and Levi. So it's, it's one thing to say, here's two similar stories. If you want to read through the, the, the New Testament, read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'd see many different stories where there was a blind man who was given sight or there was a cripple who was healed. But as you kind of compare them, you see there's a lot of differences between all the different stories. In this case, you look at the different stories, well, they're very similar, almost identical except for these one or two details. So again, that all lends to the, the, the belief that these are the same people. Some believe that Levi and Matthew were two different people. And there's an argument you can make for their personally. I believe it's a weaker argument. But here's why I share this. Ultimately, for, for one, one, what we're looking at here this morning, it doesn't really matter if they're the same person or not. Because our, our focus here this morning isn't going to be on who Matthew was or who Levi was as far as in the grander scheme of life, but who they were just in the, te- the context of this story. And how did Jesus interact with them? But if you are someone who just loves digging into God's word, I always want to give you little pieces like this and hopefully just encourage you to kind of, man, that was, that was interesting when Steve was talking about that. I, I want to learn more. And I, I pray that Sunday mornings would not be your only diet of God's word. I've said this before, that if the only dinner I had was on Sunday evenings and then I skipped all the rest, I would be a, a frail and weak man. And the word of God, view that as the bread of life, uh, the, the word of God given to us. Let's feast on it regularly. So if you want to do some further reading, I'd encourage you to dig into that. But for a second this morning here, we're going to be looking at this text here in Matthew 9, verse 9, where Jesus calls Matthew. Uh, also, many believe, and it, it's widely accepted, that the Matthew we're, we're going to be reading about is the Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew. 
Um, and so it also makes sense that if Matthew was his earlier name where he was known by as a tax collector as opposed to Levi where he would be known as one of the disciples, it could have been like, well, that name kind of had some baggage to it. And so I think he's kind of saying, man, I'm not ashamed of that because of uh, who I am in Christ now. And so he's almost revealing that in this story. That's, that's one theory in that. Anyway, Matthew 9, verse 9, let's dig into this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus comes across a Jewish tax collector named Matthew who was working. And these words, when he says, follow me, these are, are sweet, beautiful words to Matthew. See, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. And to hear this phrase, follow me, is something that he probably longed for. For, for your average young boy growing up in that culture, they would have had these different steps they would take as they were learning God's word. And it would have been the Old Testament is what they would have had. And specifically, the, the first five books of the Old Testament that we'll call the Pentateuch. And they would memorize large portions of them. They, they would dig into this. And uh, as they went through school, there would be a weeding out process. Uh, they'd have times where they would kind of say, okay, you'd not, you didn't make, not quite make the cut, so you should go back and, and, and work on the family business. Or, or they would say, you know what, hey, you got something going on here, let's take a step forward. They would continue on in their studies. And there would come a point where a rabbi would come up to them, and if he saw something in that student, he would say, follow me. Follow me. Walk with me. Do life together with me. As I have learned about God, I'm going to share that with you by doing life together. And they would get this call that they would long for to, to follow a rabbi. There's all these different writings that the rabbis would do and they would, their teachings they would pass on to their disciples and, and they would follow this rabbi. And so the fact that he's a Jewish male who's got another job other than following a rabbi says he didn't make the cut. He didn't make the cut. And all of a sudden, here's this rabbi, Jesus, who comes to him and says, follow me. Follow me. Man, that would have been a sweet thing for him to hear. Like, you, you, you want me? You, you realize who I am, Jesus, right? I, I got to imagine that went through Matthew's head. First of all, I didn't make the cut with any of the other rabbis. None of them wanted me. And, and now I got a job as a tax collector, which, by the way, does not make me very popular, Jesus. See, at that time in history, the Jews were under Roman rule, and what the, Jews, what the Romans basically did is they would set up these different areas, and they would basically sell the rights to collect taxes, and the people who purchased those uh, would be the chief tax collectors. And the chief tax, tax collectors were responsible for a dollar amount to, to bring in that much uh, via taxes to pay to Rome. Anything they could acquire above that amount would be their salary. And so they had a lot of flexibility to kind of set their own rates. And they also had the backing of the Roman military and the Roman judicial system if someone said no. And so they really could kind of make up their own taxes. And these chief tax collectors would then hire out other tax collectors to work for them to do more of the same, in essence. Say, okay, you got to raise this much for me so I can pass it on to Rome and keep some for myself. Anything above and beyond that, you get to keep for yourself. And so traditionally, tax collectors were rather wealthy in this time. But remember, Rome is, is overseeing the Jews. And so Rome, was, Rome was, was their enemy. And so on one hand, Rome probably didn't think too highly of these tax collectors because if they weren't there, they'd go get someone else. But uh, a lot of these Jews who were tax collectors weren't citizens. They weren't citizens of Rome. And, and so 
they would have been seen as less in the eyes of the Romans. And they definitely would have been seen as less in the eyes of the Jews because they were a sellout. They were a traitor. They were betraying their own people because they were not only uh, uh, taxing them to then give that money to their overseers, but they were getting rich off of it. And you see, time and time again, when we come across tax collectors, that they have wealth. We're actually see in the story here that there's a great feast that he had, and it was probably one of the nicer houses on the block and, and one of the nicer meals he would have been to. It wasn't a dinner at McDonald's. And so that was Matthew, despised by others, seen, seen as less by, i got to believe, majority people in his life. Tax collectors were so despised. You got to remember that the Jews were in this whole society of what's clean and unclean. So much life for the, 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 the Jew at this point in time when Jesus uh, walked the earth uh, revolved around temple, revolved around going uh, to offer sacrifices and different rituals you would have to do. And uh, if you were unclean, you couldn't go do those things. And so there's all these different rules and things you have to follow. And when you are unclean, here's what you have to do to become clean. And, and so being clean versus unclean was a very important thing to the Jew of that time. But tax collectors were so despised that just to be associated with one almost lumps you into the unclean. You'd be seen as unclean because of who you associated with. Have you ever thought this way? I, mean, I still remember in grade school of all places, I remember being in grade school, and there's a friend of mine, I still remember his name, Spencer. I, I can visualize where he lived in his house, and um, we had some common interests, and so we kind of hung out a few times together, and, and, and uh, I would consider him a friend. But one thing I remember about him is he was kind of awkward. He just, socially, you know, he just didn't quite fit in. He would act in, in some ways that other kids would see as weird. And I remember, just in grade school, I remember thinking to myself, how are people going to view me when they find out I'm Spencer's friend? How are people going to, uh, what are they going to think about me? And I would see how people would pick on him, and instead of standing up for him, I would think to myself, what if they knew I was friends with him? So even in grade school, here I am wondering, man, how are my associations going to make me look? Now that wasn't right. There, there, there was sin in there, that there call for repentance in that. But can you, can you relate to that? Have you ever thought that when it comes to interacting with someone that was maybe seen as less than? Someone that you'd say, man, they're, they're damaged goods. I, I can't associate with them. That's how Matthew would have been viewed by his own people, this tax collector. But the message to Matthew was clear. Not only, yes, he was seen as less by so many, but Jesus offers this amazing invitation. He says, follow me. Follow me. So Matthew gets up and becomes a Jesus follower and is forever changed. And so what does he do next that we see in the text? We're going to see he basically takes all his new friends, uh, Jesus and, and the disciples he'd already called up to that point. He takes all his old friends, other tax collectors and, and sinners and, and those who've been outcast and seen as damaged goods, and he throws a party for them all. In essence, he says, you got to meet this guy. He's amazing. And you can look all throughout Scripture when Jesus has an interaction with someone and their lives are changed. When he says, follow me, and they do. One of the next things they do so many times is say, hey, i, I got to go get someone. they got to meet Jesus. That's a great picture for us in our own lives. I, I know it looks different for each one of us. Some of us, we can share our faith and, and why we believe in God very easily and naturally. And others, it's scary and a chore. Yes, there's space for us to do that differently in our lives, but a piece of following Jesus for those who are Christ followers is realizing this amazing gift we've received and wanting to say, hey, 
I got some other people who need to hear about this too. Let me do what I can do to bring them to a place to meet Jesus. But let's, let's go back to our text here and see what happens. So Jesus calls Matthew, and then pick up here in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Matthew throws this party. He invites all his friends. Jesus comes and he brings his disciples with him as well. And somehow the Pharisees end up there. Whether they hear about this party, maybe it's just that big of a party that the whole town shows up, or maybe they got an invite somehow, but there's some Pharisees that end up at this party. And, and all they can see is the fact that here's Jesus, the supposed rabbi and his followers, having a dinner with all these unclean tax collectors and sinners. Just the fact that the Pharisees label them, categorize them as tax collectors and sinners reveals a little bit of the heart of the Pharisees. They were setting themselves apart. They were, in essence, saying, we see ourselves as righteous and we see them all as damaged goods. We see them all as outcasts and not worth our time. Why would Jesus eat with them? Because now he's going to be seen as unclean. And this righteousness that they were putting on themselves wasn't a genuine or pure righteousness. It was a self-righteousness. See, they saw a difference between them and those at the feast. And they were right. There was a difference, but it wasn't the one that they identified. They were trying to say, we're righteous, and they're not. But the difference truly was those at the feast, I think if push came to shove, are able to identify that, yes, there's aspects of my life that are a mess. Yes, there, there, there are, are sins in my life, however you want to label me or not, there's, there's issues in my life, whereas the Pharisees had blinded themselves and, and had put on this lens of self-righteousness and couldn't see, they couldn't see their own injury. And they asked this question, if your teacher, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, if your teacher was any good, he'd, he'd associate with, with those who are holy, not, not with these people here. Why, why does he associate with these people and it doesn't even say that the disciples respond. Jesus gets wind of this, and he just chimes in. He says, hey, it's not the sick who need a doctor. I'm sorry, it's not the healthy. Woo. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy, but the sick. See, those whose life is a mess can, can see their need for Jesus. I believe that the text doesn't reveal this, but it's just what I know of the heart of Jesus and what I see when people hear about him. I would imagine that most people at this dinner, they knew what Jesus was about. They'd heard at least, or they wanted to learn more, and they were learning more as they had a chance to have dinner with him. And just that truth alone of having Jesus with them, I'm sure it made clear to them some of the issues in their life. This is important to note this because I think uh, sometimes as followers of Christ, we get so caught up and, and feel like we need to make sure everyone knows all their issues. Feel like we need to make sure that everyone knows all their sins. Where we almost make that a priority. We spend so much time and say, hey, here's all the things you're doing wrong. Maybe even we, we, we mask it. We say, oh no, we're trying to do it out of love because these are the things that... Set. We don't need to get that detail, especially if they don't even know Jesus yet. 
too often in sharing, sharing one's faith, we focus on making sure they know all their sin, but many times people already know that. They're already very much aware of that. It's the self-righteous that fail to see their need. It's those who are so caught up in self and trying to impose their own righteousness on them. Those are the ones that fail to see their own need. Uh, if you're familiar with Monty Python, I know he hasn't done much, uh, that, that whole series, there's all older stuff, but there was a movie called The Life, um, not The Life, Brian, uh, The Holy Grail. There's a scene in there with the Black Knight. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. And, and basically, the, the comedy aspect of it is this Black Knight is fighting against another knight, trying to stop his way. He's on a journey, he's trying to stop him from getting past, and he basically just gets taken out. I mean, like losing limbs, all that kind of stuff. And um, so he's down to just, you know, body in the head. And he's like, oh, come back. You know, he's always got more fight in him. And when he loses his first arm, you know, he's like, I cut off your arm. He's like, no, it's just a scratch. Just a scratch. I mean, here he's got these massive wounds. And he's like, oh, no, it's just a scratch. He was blind to his own injuries. I mean, in essence, you could put the Pharisees in that place. They would say, oh, no, we're good. We're fine. No, you're not. you got no legs and no arms. Jesus, I came for the sick. He further explains why he's come to call sinners to himself. It says that there in uh, verse 13 at the end, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As part of that verse, he he quotes Hosea 6.6 when he says, go and learn what this means. That's a a quote from Hosea 6.6. It says, I desire mercy and not not sacrifice. Other translations would say, "I, I desire steadfast love. That's the heart of mercy they're talking about. I I desire mercy and steadfast love, not sacrifice. See, the Pharisees were living by sacrifice. That was the way the Pharisees were living. This mindset of, so in their day and age, if there was sin in your life, you would offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would pay the price for your sins. And so if you sinned, you went and did this, you checked the box, I've done it, I'm good, I'm clean. And then other things, okay, I just don't do these things, and I'm good. I checked the box, and I'm good. As a good Pharisee, I need to attend these different gatherings and different services. Okay, I go, I'm good. But in doing all these things, in doing all these religious acts, they completely neglected the heart of God. They completely missed the heart of God. So they were living this life where they were relying on a sacrifice to pay their price for their mistakes and their sins, and yet they missed the heart of God. And that's one reason I believe Jesus said, hey, I desire mercy. I desire steadfast love. I desire for you to know my heart. I desire for you to know the heart of God instead of just doing a bunch of religious things. Because that was the Pharisees. They were just doing a bunch of religious things. And because of it, got them caught up in self-righteousness. But Jesus' call is not one of checking off boxes and simply not breaking the rules. Um, One way we could phrase this as we look at it today is honestly, there is very little reason to attend church. I'm using my words very, very intensely. There's very little reason to attend church for most people. I would say that for those who, who um, are exploring who Jesus is and have questions and are curious, come and attend. We would invite you to do more. We want to make space for you to engage and to experience for yourself. But if you just want to come attend and see and witness and be a fly on the wall, you're more than welcome to. But for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we are not called to simply attend and check a box. 
We are called to be the church. We are called to engage in the life of the church. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations. We are called to worship together, uh, to build each other up in love, to to, uh, hear the preaching and teaching of God's word, to have conversation about what it means and, and how it applies to our lives. It's a very active life. Attending is checking a box. Engaging is something completely different. And so there's all kinds of reasons why we should engage in life as the church. So like I said, for those who aren't followers of Jesus yet, there's a place to attend. Come and see. But know that we invite you into this place of engaging, of being active in the life of the church, not simply um, putting on a self-righteousness by doing the right things, but by seeking the heart of God that we would see what he desires for us. And so... You get this call to Matthew. The, the, the Pharisees are, are saying, why, why would you associate with them? He goes, call to Matthew. He says, follow me. And he calls us to live by mercy and not by sacrifice. A call to the heart of the Father. If you've ever felt like damaged goods, I want you to hear the same call for you. The same call that Matthew got, this follow me. If you've ever felt like damaged goods, hear that call now. Jesus calls you to himself. If you've ever written someone off as damaged goods, if you're doing that right now in your life, I want you to remember that Jesus calls them to himself as well. As we wrap up here, there's two common themes I want us to look at this morning. And we're going to see these throughout. We're not always acknowledge them, but we're going to see these throughout the different stories that we look at in this series. There's two common themes this next, over this next month that we're going to see. The first one is this. Jesus comes to those who are damaged, dented, and dinged up. Jesus comes to those who are damaged, dented, and dinged up. See, we are created in the image of God. We are holy and righteous. But then sin enters this picture and messes it up, leaves us broken and damaged and dented and dinged, and it leaves us in this place. And so in one perspective, you could say, yes, we are all damaged goods. Because of the ways that we've gone against God, we are living less than what God has desired for us. But here's the beautiful part of the story, is that Jesus comes to those who are damaged, dented, and dinged up. And he brings an offer of restoration. He brings an offer of hope that when we trust in him, our sins are forgiven. We are made new. We are made afresh. And we are being made new. He restores us. See, if you can relate to the Pharisees in this story at all, so what do they do? Jesus just said, I didn't come for you guys. I came for the sick over here. If you can relate to the Pharisees at all, if you feel like there's any self-righteousness in your life, I would encourage you to repent of that. Acknowledge that you can't take care of these dents and dings on your own, but you need the blood of Jesus to pay that price. Because when you do that, you're basically taking off that self-righteous hat and you're having a seat at the table with Jesus. And as we see, Jesus comes to those who are damaged, dented, and dinged up. So the solution to self-righteousness is to take off that self-righteousness because it does nothing and to acknowledge our reality before God. That yes, we, we're damaged goods. But there's hope knowing that Jesus comes to us. Uh, a quick little tangent here. Uh, there's some who would use this passage to justify a lifestyle that's no different than the world. They'd say, look, Jesus is just partying it up with all these sinners, right? And the Pharisees see it and like, what's he doing? It's not saying that he's engaging in all the same things that they would be engaging in. It says he's pursuing them. We see he's having a meal together. He's pursuing a relationship with them. But then he calls them to something different. He calls them to himself. 
This passage doesn't say, go and live just like everybody else. But it says, go and pursue those who are far from God. Pursue relationship with them. Invite them into your home or build a relationship where you have the honor of being invited into their home and have a meal together and then call them to something greater. Call them not to to sacrifice checking boxes on life, saying, well, I figured this out. I'll just kind of do some of these things. But call them to the person of Jesus. That's the second point we're going to see here throughout this series, that Jesus offers invitation over judgment. Invitation over judgment. An invitation into relationship with God. Not in this a religion of some things you do and don't do. But Jesus invites those who are damaged, dented, and dinged up into a relationship with God. You have a seat at the table with Jesus. Just let that sink in for a minute. No matter how broken you feel right now, you have a seat at the table with Jesus. On the other side of that, the people that you may be written off in your life, they have a seat at the table with Jesus. This is an invitation to a relationship with God. This is an invitation to a new way of life that is motivated by, empowered by, and guided by a love for God. This is an invitation to a restoration where we are made righteous and being made righteous. Meadowland Church, I invite you, if you're not already, into a relationship with Jesus. Not into a religion, but into a relationship with Jesus. I invite you to engage in the life of the church in a new way or a renewed way. If you've just been checking boxes, if you come on Sunday mornings because you're supposed to, I invite you to come because you want to engage in the life of the church. If you're not sure what that means, we'll unpack that more in future weeks, Um, but I'd love to have a conversation with you as well. We serve, we give, we, we love, we care for each other because it's what we're called to be. It's who we are being made to be as the church. I invite you into a new way of life found in Jesus. In the end, we're all damaged goods, right? We've all made mistakes, which is why Jesus came to rescue and restore us. Let us also go to those who are damaged, dent up, dented up and dinged. Let's invite them. Let's live a life that chooses invitation over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you come to us, that you don't write us off, Father. (coughs) Help us to respond like Matthew did. When you say, follow me, help us just to get up and go. And then to engage in life together with you. We're just, the, the rhythms of our life are about you, where we invite people into our homes so they can see you and have dinner with you, have a seat at the table with you. The things that we do are what you call us to, where we serve and give and, and, and worship because of who you are, not simply because of a box we want to check. Father, you call us to engage. You call us to be the church. Help us to live that out. Even though we are damaged goods, you restore us and you make us whole. So Father, for some of us here, we need to receive that for the first time. We need to receive your sacrifice on the cross. We need to surrender our lives to you, Jesus, to say, your sacrifice paid the price for my mistakes. And I trust in you, Jesus, as Lord, the leader of my life, and as my Savior, the forgiver of my sins. Some of us, Father, are on a different side where we need to repent, where there's others that we've treated 
as tax collectors, as sinners, as outcasts. Father, help us to take off our veil of self-righteousness. Help us to acknowledge our own dents, our own dings, our own damage. Forgive us, Father, for the ways we've written off others. And help us to live a life of engaging you, of engaging your church, giving our lives over to you, Father. In your name, amen.